Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Our new book on understanding viruses has recently come out on Amazon and Kindle. Just go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, and you'll see the book on understanding viruses, should you wish to order it. Today, my guest is Daniel Machado. He's an associate professor of computational biology uh, at a university in uh, Norway. It's a Norwegian science and technology university, and he's working on uh, issues related to microbes, and uh, we'll get into the computational models that describe them. So, Daniel, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me, Richard. Very, very nice to be here. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your research. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, like you said, I, I'm a computational biologist, which essentially means that I, I use computers to uh, study biology. And to be more precise, I, I study the metabolism of, of different kinds of microbes. I should say that I think most computational biologists are know, that I know are, are biologists that got interested into computers because they realized that, you know, they had a lot of data to analyze and, and they needed computers. In my case, it was actually the opposite. So I, I'm a computer scientist by training. And I eventually mm. realized that biology is, is a really fascinating topic. And, you know, I like to think of a cell has like a, a, a complex computer and, you know, the DNA or the genome has like a, a piece of software that has evolved for, for millions of years. Gotcha. Okay. So you said uh, you're studying the metabolism of certain organisms. Is it bacteria, uh, protists, fungi? What is it? Uh, so, so 
Microbes in, in general, so, so I mean, we, in theory, we can study any kind of organism with, with regard to their metabolism, but my focus has been on, on microbes and, and primarily bacteria. So at first I, I was just studying and part of like my PhD work and postdoc work was on, on just single organisms, especially the ones that are used in, in industrial biotechnology like E. coli, which is a bacteria, or, or, or yeast, which is a, a fungi, um, which are very commonly used nowadays to, to make different kinds of, of, of products, to, so, right. so to ferment products and make things of added commercial value. Yeah, and, and then I got into the topic of, of microbial communities and to understand how microbes, you know, uh, work together in, in, in interaction. So do you study um, individual E. coli or do you study biofilm? Like, you know, um, how do you do this? So when I was focusing on single species, it was basically modeling population of E. coli cells growing like in a fermentation tank. So assuming that things are heterogeneous and then they are in aqueous environments. So not biofilms. I guess biofilms is something that people study most from from the perspective of like pathogen microbes how they mm. contaminate surfaces and so on so my focus was not so much on that so so it was more more on, on industrial fermentation well the reason why i ask is that you know the metabolism of uh, of microbes probably changes if they're alone if they're in a biofilm if they're with other microbes i would think in every context their metabolism might change a little or a lot but what have you observed Yes, exactly. So, so yeah, so, so that's what got us interested into this topic of, of microbial communities. And this is something I, I started, I should mention, when I was a postdoc a couple of years ago in, in the group of Kiran Patil at TMBL. And we studied this while I was there for maybe four years. So, so trying to understand how, how microbes work in communities, because only in very artificial settings like laboratories, you will find microbes in isolation. When you find them in nature, they are never in isolation. So, you know, you can find microbes in your guts, you find microbes in the soils, in yeah. the oceans, and you never find a single species. You always find like very complex communities with different species, sometimes dozens, sometimes hundreds. So we're if really interested. Are doing, if people are doing fermentation, do they deliberately purify and keep only E. coli in their fermentation or do they mix microbes to facilitate it? That's, that's a really good question. So until so far, it was ideally a single species fermentation. So you, you would take like a, a wild type E. coli strain and you will try to optimize it so that, that it produces as much as possible of a given compound. And there are some interesting cases of this where, where like E. coli or yeast have been engineered to produce like biofuels or, or different pharmaceutical drugs. And there you, you just want one strain that really produces a lot, which is grows fast and just makes a lot of product uh, so that you have a, a really economically viable process. And because of that, you would like to have a single species. You don't want to have contamination or other things in there that will slow down your process. But no, nowadays, we are shifting towards, and this is something that I'm more interested, especially since I started working with microbial communities, which is to have synthetic consortium, consortia of bacteria running a fermentation. Because then you can do a sort of division of labor and have different bacteria do different things. And there are situations where you can have like more efficient processes when you use mixed species rather than a single species. So what are some examples? What have you mixed and how did it change the metabolism of the E. coli and the outcome? Yeah, so, so one application nowadays is is 
when when we want to use uh, like raw raw substrate. So typical fermentation processes they are based on on simple sugars like glucose, for instance. Like let's say you want to make bioethanol, which is like one 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 thing that I guess some people will be familiar with. You know, you, you would start with with a sugar and you would engineer, uh, for instance, a yeast like, like Saccharomyces cerevisiae to transform that sugar into as much uh, ethanol as possible. The problem with this is that you're taking a substrate which is already a very refined substrate. And to make this more, more sustainable, ideally, we would want to take just raw substrate like, you know, uh, lignocellulosic waste where you just take, you know, you know, all the leftovers from different industries, you know, like, like you know, the leftovers from the wood industry. There are also people looking into leftovers, especially here in Nor- Norway, leftovers from the fish industry. So you would take like a raw substrate where you have a, a mixed sort of, of nutrients. And it's very hard to engineer like just one microbe to be very efficient on fermenting all those nutrients. So we are now looking into combining different species to, to ferment a mixture of nutrients derived from lignocellulose. And then having species that will take the intermediates of those fermentations and convert it into the into the final product. So yeah, that, that's one of example of that. What what is the final product to the cellulose? That's the substrate they eat, but what's the final product? Yeah. So so the nice thing about metabolism is that you know if 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 you divide metabolism between like the, two essential things that it does. So one is is catabolism, where you take, you know, things and you break them down. And then you have anabolism, where you take, you know, the building blocks and you build something else. And basically all of metabolism eventually gets converted into a few intermediates, like glucose, pyruvate, you know, acetate and so on. And so you can break things down into very simple intermediates. And then, you know, from that you can practically build anything you want and if if usually when you are trying to build a product that doesn't exist in the native metabolism of your species what you do is you just take the genes from other species so one of the examples i was giving so with, with pharmaceutical drugs you know many of these drugs they, they were originally identified in plants so one, one famous case is artemisinin which is an anti-malarial drug which is extracted from a plant but in plants First, you have very low yields of the product you want to extract. And then there's a problem of cultivation that where you have to use a lot of land to, to uh, grow a lot of the plant and you ha- then you have a very low extraction yield. So we can take the genes from those plants which are responsible for encoding the pathway that makes the products and then we... Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Put those genes inside E. coli, for instance, and from any basic 
metabolic precursor, we can you know make that product. Of course, there's a lot of, of then engineering involved to op optimize the pathway and so on. But in theory, uh, from a few basic precursors, that there's uh, you know the sky's the limit. There, there's anything that we in theory could produce as long as we can identify a pathway in a different organism. Well, what have you successfully produced so far? What are some examples where E. coli is? So, like I said in the beginning, this is something that we are now looking into. I, I've been in, involved in in. But I mean, are there, commercial, are there commercial examples that people have already used E. coli that you can model off of? Sure, sure, sure. So, so in terms of, of commercial products, I, I would say that uh, like pharmaceutical drugs are, are, are one example, uh, like artemisinin. And I was involved in, in one project where we wanted to produce curcumin. So curcumin is the yellow, yellow pigment from turmeric. It, it's known for having like anti-carcinogenic properties and so on, but it's... And so having it produced in E. coli would increase the amount of, basically the amount that you can produce uh, and, and make it a, a much more economically viable process. Yes, yeah, so, so that was one project that I was directly involved. Although, like I said in the beginning, I'm, I'm since I'm a computer scientist or, or a computational biologist, I, I'm mostly uh, focused on, on method development. And usually, you know, I then use my models, you know, run simulations, and then I just give my results to experimental people who will actually build things in the lab. So I'm not so close to the to the final product. I'm more on the on the very preliminary stage of like method development and model development and so on. What is your part of the modeling involved? What are you looking for to model? Yeah, in I think a good example I can give you is publication we had where we were looking at microbial communities and we were trying to find sort of universal principles of how microbes interact and, and how how metabolism is sort of distributed along these these microbial communities. Like are, are they, you know, are they sharing metabolites? Are they competing for metabolites? So so we use data from this project called the Earth Microbiome Project. This is a huge project that has collected like thousands of samples from all over the world. And we basically took this, the, the communities in these samples, we, we built models for them, and then we ran simulations. And here we came to the really interesting conclusion that we could basically divide all communities into two main groups. So one group that was extremely competitive and one group that was extremely cooperative and nothing else in between. So, and, and, the, and the, the, the distinction was really extreme. That's why in the end, we, we ended up using the word polarization in the title of the paper. And then we, we found, I can, I can talk about this, this work in more detail if you want. We, we found some inter, really interesting properties of, of these communities that we think are sort of universal. They, they, because we, we use data from you know, thousands of communities from host associated environments like, like, guts, like gut communities all the way to like free living communities like the ones in soils and water and so on. So we think these are really universal principles of, of community. Well, what do you mean? What, what are some of the universal principles you, you're modeling and what have you discovered? Yeah, so so when when we we simulated the the interactions between these species in these communities, and, and like I said, we discovered that they divided into the, these two subgroups, the comparative ones and the competitive ones. So we then tried to understand like what what makes them behave in this extremely extreme way of being either only extremely cooperative or only extremely competitive. And so one conclusion was that the the the, the species that participate in the cooperative communities they they tend to have smaller genomes. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Because they lost the ability to synthesize some of the nutrients that they need. And having a, a smaller genome allows them to grow faster, so it gives them an advantage. But on the other hand, they end up 
needing that these essential nutrients be either provided by the environment or by other species. So they end up with more dependencies. And, and the competitive communities, on the other hand, they, they have larger genomes because they encode all the, the, all the pathways that they need. So, so they can build the, all of their precursors just from a, a few very minimal nutrients. But the, the result is that they, they grow slower because they have larger genomes and they end up competing more for these minimal nutrients that they need, that they need like among their, themselves. So why would smaller genomes allow the bacteria to grow faster? Uh, because then the, the, they can invest more uh, energy ju- just on, on, on growth. So because with the larger genomes, they, they have invest more of the energy on, on, translate, on translation, transcription, on, on you know, encoding all of the biosyntactic all the biosyntactic genes on, on duplicating their genome. So, you know, the, the larger your, your genome, the, the more, let's say, tasks you have to do. So, you know, you, you cannot grow as fast. So, so having a reduced okay. genome allows you to, to just replicate faster, which in theory, it's, it's what cells want to do, at least microbes. They just want to grow as fast as possible to outcompete everyone else. Yeah, yeah. but so if, where does E. coli fall in, the, in terms of the scale of its genome? Is it a large one or a small one in your consideration? Uh, uh, e. coli has a, a large genome. It, it's one of the bacteria with, with the largest genomes. So uh, in theory, it, it's, it's a more competitive bacteria. So E. coli can grow just on glucose, just on pure sugar. So it can synthesize like all of its amino acids. It doesn't need anyone else to grow. But also this tells me if you're trying to use a microbe to produce some metabolite that you want and it has a small genome, it's very likely that you'd have to get other microbes in the same sample to work with it because it it probably won't get there on its own. It needs the help from other microbes. Yes, yes, exactly. So that's where the division of labor comes in. So another thing we realize is that these these cooperative species, not only they have smaller genomes, but they have a more complementary metabolism. So the things that they need are different. Let's say species A lost the ability to produce amino acid X, species B lost the ability to produce amino acid Y, and so the genes that they lost are very complementary. So they, they, they seem to be doing some sort of division of labor. They seem to have co-evolved towards this division of labor, which in the end is, is beneficial for everyone. Because we see that in the samples where these species appear, they always have higher abundance compared to other species that are not participating in this cooperation. And so for engineering synthetic communities, for, for industrial purposes, we can, we can use the same principle. We can also rationalize it in the same way. You know, if, if we divide labor through different species, we can get them to have smaller genomes, but to still grow faster, so achieve a, a faster fermentation process. So you're trying to get the E. coli specifically in your application to what? To ferment what? To make what? That's a very good question. So, And it's funny that, that you, you, you mentioned E. coli because that's what I mentioned in the beginning. But we are trying to get away from, from simply E. coli to actually explore all potential combinations of microbes. Because the, the, So E. coli and yeast and just a few other model species have been used a lot in industrial fermentations just because they, they you know, they are known from the from you know for many years that they you know people know how to work with them but you know there there's so much microbial diversity to explore and with like with with the like next next gen sequencing data and we are, we are like uh, sequencing so many so many communities on, on so many environments we are now discovering like hundreds of thousands of 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 species so um so actually our idea is to 
either you know move away from just using E. coli or or, or combining E. coli with with other microbes. Um, and you know regarding the products, I mean th there's like I said almost unlimited potential. So so one project that I'm interested in now and this is something we just apply for funding is to is to use microbes uh, and it could be E. coli or yeast or, or another type of microbe to engineer pathways of plants because like i said you know plants have have a lot of natural compounds which which have you know for which people have found many applications that are there are plant compounds with like antimicrobial properties with with nutritional properties and so on but usually these these compounds are, are present in very slow very small amounts in plants so you know like i said earlier you need you need a lot of land to co cultivate these plants and then you have a, a low a low yield uh, of the process so taking the genes from these plants putting them into e coli or other microbes creates a sort of portfolio of of compounds that in principle we can produce what are the um the limitations of the e coli chassis why why do you want to look at something else like what can't e coli do that's an interesting question so so e coli for instance prokaryote so that already limits its functionality in terms of the intracellular compartments it has for instance for instance some of the plant pathways they they have to be expressed in in some particular eukaryotic compartments that uh, that e coli doesn't have for instance and in that case for instance a, a yeast would, would be a better host because it's a prokaryote. Oh, sorry, it's a eukaryote, so it already already has those compartments that the plant genes will need in order to you know to do their function. Uh, on the other hand, you know yeasts might have you know disadvantages in terms of you know the type of substrates it can grow and so on. So, for instance, we could create a, a consortium where you know E. coli encodes a takes up the substrate, encodes the first parts of the pathway, then it secretes some intermediate, and then the yeast would take up that intermediate and then encode the rest of the pathway that needs to be expressed in a particular organelle that E. coli doesn't have. So, so that would be, for instance, a combination where we would use another species to complement something that E. coli cannot do. Well, the, um, the plants that produce the substance you want, for instance, in whatever case, what do their microbiomes look like? maybe select from the natural microbiome that would be around that plant because they're probably involved in at least some of the intermediate metabolites. So plant microbiome is, is something that, you know, people are also looking into a lot nowadays. And, and again, this is something which was only possible recently because of, you know, next-gen sequencing technologies where we can look at all the microbes which, which are there because before we could only look at the microbes that will go on a, on a culture plate, which will be very few. And now, you know, we are discovering that, you know, the, the root of a plant has probably like dozens or hundreds of microbes there that just, you know, that are just living freely in the soil and then associate with the root of the plant and then engaging in, in nutrient interactions. But one, one thing that, so this is very recent, but something that, that has been sort of uncovered is that these interactions between plant microbiome and, and the plant itself relate mainly to, to primary elements. So exchange of inorganic compounds and, and simple carbon sources and so on. Usually the, the, these kind of, of natural compounds, they are under the realm of, of secondary metabolism. Usually the microbes don't get involved directly in that part. Well, to complicate it further, about phages and phage activity do you account for that in your models no i, I have to say we don't because uh, i mean phages are, are well technically they, they are considered microbes but they are not microorganisms so so they they don't they don't think of their own metabolism so you know we cannot model you know metabolic cross-feeding interactions between a phage and microbes i mean one thing people do and, and this is 
already a little bit outside of my, my field of expertise is, is to look at, at phages has, has vectors of like horizontal gene transfer and, and how metabolic functions are, are, are transferred horizontally between different bacteria. But that's you know, mainly from the perspective of seeing how, how bacteria have evolved and how they have acquired you know, metabolic functionalities. But if you have bacteria working together with yeast or whatever, and you're asking them to produce a certain metabolite in mass, that would change the phage population that preys upon them. There's going to be one. So maybe they're conveying, you know, maybe the gene expression of the E. coli changes uh, or the phage helps it to change if it's making, uh, you know, a certain metabolite for you in conjunction with yeast. I mean, who knows? It, it might be an important part of the calculation if you're not able to get the results you want and there's something invisible that's missing. It could be that. Who knows? Yeah, so so we usually say that models are there's well, it's almost a cliche to say this. Uh, it's a, it's a famous quote from from the statistician George Box that all models are wrong, but some are useful. So we know that our models are incomplete, and and that's actually something that we can try to take into account. So how do phages? So yeah, because like I say, there there's going to be a dynamic between the population of phages and the population of bacteria. And yeah, if, if we sh- change the relative abundances between the bacteria and the population or the yeast, it's going to also change the relative abundances of the phages and, and how they interact. So then, yeah, we, we get into the realm of, of, of population dynamics. Yeah, so, so that's, that's a, a very interesting question. So has the excuse that any scientist will say is that, you know, we, we leave that to future work. The, um, the metabolite or product that you've made that's most successful so far, what does the model look like? That's an inter- interesting question. I would say that the, the most, most, most commonly used products have come from E. coli. Either E. coli or yeast. So, and when I say yeast, I mean I mean Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And, and the the models for, for both of these organisms, they they are very well known. They they have been built for I would say almost two decades now. So so you know one group started with a very basic model, and then several groups have like for the last two decades improved on these models. So we now have very good models for 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 E. coli and for yeast. And, and these are the two main ones used in industrial industrial applications. Like I said right, before, for I, you for you specifically, which production of which kind of substance have you modeled and gotten mm-hmm. furthest along on? Like what is you know again in your modeling, what have you modeled most accurately or most completely so far? What substance? So, so for me, this this, this work was curcumin in particular. So this was maybe the mm-hmm. only okay. project where I was you know, involved towards more the end of the project where we were very close to, to, to the to the end product. Usually, like I said, I, I'm I'm more in the phase of, of method development and I, I try to develop things in a way that would work for any, you know, any circumstances, any cases, any kind of environmental conditions, you know, simulation methods that would work with, with any microbe if, if we are given a model. But the one where I got closer to the end product and I was involved into the end was this, this curcumin project. So we, I don't remember exactly how, how much we got in the end in terms of uh, production yields, but uh, uh, I remember that by, by inserting, you know, a, a couple of genes from the plant and then uh, changing the, the native the native metabolism, you know, tweaking it in, if, in a few ways that sort of redirected the, the native carbon towards the product we wanted. We increased the, the yield by... Oh, but you increased yield several times, like 2, 3x? Yeah. Or yeah, maybe more? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Was there any difference in the curcumin that was produced by the bacteria versus... Um, how it's normally produced? No, and and that, that's I think the the 
great thing about you know the, these biotechnological processes where we use we use uh, microbes to produce things is that you know in the end we make exactly the same molecule and if we were not using you know uh, microbial fermentation you know these are molecules that would like i said earlier either be extracted from plants or produced by via uh, chemical production and this you know which is the, the most common case and, and chemical production is 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 more expensive is a lot less environment friendly these are processes that require high temperatures the, the use of metal catalysts and so on so and you know with with microbes we can make exactly the same molecules but using much more environmental friendly process so yeah that one of the things that that makes me excited about this topic and about this field well, what's next? What what metabolite are you going to focus on now to make? That's an interesting question. You're trying to make me focus on particular microbes and particular uh, metabolites, and I'm trying to run away from those questions because I I like to think of things on on a broad scale. I I, I don't like to focus on like one particular system or one particular compound. I, I like to find like That's okay. Well, tell me <laughs> some of the factors then. Sure. What are the sure. factors I mean... that that decide whether you can make something or not? The yield. Yeah. I mean, what are some of the major levers on yeah. what you do so what i'm trying to make and what i'm trying to achieve is is to you know improve the, the quality of our models so we can have better predictive models of of either single species or communities so that we know how to re-engineer them how we can find the right right perturbation that we you know switch you know the, the system from its current state to, to a different state and you know i, I like to think of, of things always in in a very generic way that would be applied towards a, you know, a broad range of cases. And, and, and one reason for that is that you know, microbes are, like I said earlier, they're everywhere, you know, in our guts, in the soils, in the oceans. And you know, future applications of, of microbes in biotechnology, they cover things like, like I said, you know, industrial biotechnology, trying to make biofuels, trying to make medicines, but also health. You know, there, there, there's a lot of, of uh, uh, gut dysbiosis being associated, you know, with, with problems in the microbiome and, and then, you know, gi- and then giving, giving a, a rise to different diseases. And I know that you've had guests here talking about this kind of thing. So I, I will not get much into this. There's also the environment. So, so microbes are, are involved in all of the planetary ecosystems. And now with, with, with climate change, you know, we need to understand how, how they are going to be affected and, if they are affected and it's in a sort of irreversible way, how can we manually re-engineer them again so to make the, the ecosystem healthier or stable, to say it like that? So I think that the, the range of applications is so fast that that's why I'm trying to run away from your question of, of trying to focus okay. into a particular microbe or, or, or a particular compound. But you have to have some focus. Otherwise, you know, again, you'll yes, be running around yeah. like... Chicken with no head. Yeah. You know, if you can say what what projects are you working on, what are you sure, trying to sure. do right now? So from the, these three topics I mentioned, like industrial biotechnology or health or the environment. So industrial biotech is the one that I'll say closer to my heart. And the particular thing I'm focusing on now is the the taking of bioprocess from a single species to multiple species. Like I said, to try to create this division of labor to make processes more efficient and also to expand the, the metabolic capabilities of a process, trying to do things that would not be possible with a single microbe. So degrading more substrates, so having more complex substrates so that we can use leftovers from different industries and also expanding on the range of products that, that we want to produce. So, you know, and, and, and the combination of these two things, expanding on the, pro, on, the, on the substrates and simultaneously expanding on the substrates and those products creates a, a real combination of, of things that, you know, then we just have to screen by, you know, economic variability, you know, what, what is more interesting. So, so the, the one I'm 
now mostly involved, and this is a grant that just got accepted, it is for degrading lignocellulose and then building medium chain, what's called medium chain fatty acids, so C6 and, and C8 compounds. One reason for that is that this, some of these fatty acids are come from the palm oil industry, which has, right, yep. you know, which as you huge, are aware, yeah. it's, yeah. So that will be one implication. So and it's replacement of the environment too, yeah, I know Exactly, that. exactly. Yeah. So, so you know, overall, the, the goal of this, you know, by sustainable, you know, industrial biotechnology is replacing processes, you know, either like the palm oil industry where you are just destroying a, a whole habitat or, or the chemical industry where you're using a process with, which is not friendly to, towards the environment with something which is which is more more sustainable. Where yeah, what you you're use... doing is very, very important in that context. Yeah? <laughs> um, yeah, going you. back to the curcumin example. You said the yield went up a lot. Were there any side products produced that were surprising or useful uh, or unusual? <laughs> yeah, so not 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 unusual or surprising. Usually the side products that we have are, are very are sort of very predictable. I mean, cells have evolved to make certain things and, and they, they like to, to make the things that they know how to do well because that's what they evolved to. Uh, for instance, yeast likes to ferment stuff into alcohol or in the, well, ethanol in this case. Um, uh, e. coli likes to make acetate. So when, when, the, when the, the carbon that comes from the substrate is not going to our product, it's usually going to the, to the usual suspects, like, like these very basic fermentation products. So in this case, that, that, that was one typical byproduct, like, you know, these acetate, succinate, the, the very basic metabolic intermediates. Um, and then we, we had different curcuminoids being produced. So usually, like curcumin, other natural products, they usually come in... in I don't know what to call it, different flavors. So, so there are slight variations of the molecule that, you know, if, if you would make a drug out of them, they would have slightly different effects. So when we, we made curcumin, we also had as a byproduct some, some different curcuminoids, which are just, a, it's basically a curcumin molecule, but with slight variations at the endings, which, you know, in theory, you know, we can, we could just like discard or we can just try to, in a downstream processing, get get rid of those byproducts. Well, when a plant produces substances, they rarely produce them alone. And all the ancillary helper substances may make the plant, you know, compound a lot more effective. So you may want to pay attention to the side products created. They may be the same as a plant or very different, but they may boost yields effectiveness. Even though the yield stays the same, they may boost the effectiveness of it. So I wouldn't just throw them away and say, ah, mm-hmm. that curcumin, forget it, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, no, that, that, that's yeah, that that's a very interesting remark. It depends a lot on on, on the process. I mean, usually the, this you know this would be done under an economic assessment of you know what is a product we are trying to make, what 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 is its value? Are there other industries that can make the same product for a cheaper price? And you know how much we can make of this molecule, and will it replace you know chemical production or typical plantations? So if if there are you know byproducts which would also be economically interesting or could have an effect and like you say it's better that we do not discard them that you know that this would be taken into account into the economic viability of the process if i had a magic wand and i waved it to grant you the knowledge you wanted what, what kind of questions do you have that are really puzzling you that you wish you knew the answers to right now interesting question i just made that one up you're the first oh, subject. oh no Let's see what happens. yeah if I could have all the knowledge I could have. Well, in your particular area of research, like what, yeah, what yeah, questions yeah. are really sure. like puzzling you or 
Sure. So one thing that that we would like to know is what of the other genes doing when when we look at the genome. So you know, so the models that I work with, they are metabolic models. We call them genome scale metabolic models because we build them by you know taking a genome, we annotate the functions of all the genes just by comparing it to to all the genes that are you know in a reference database and whose functions have been annotated. And during this process. There are a ton of genes which which do not get any annotations because you know we, we just haven't discovered what they do, and this is something that cannot be done in, in a high throughput way. You know, nowadays you know most of biology is done in a high throughput way. You know, like next gen sequencing, we just sequence a bunch of microbes. You know, sometimes thousands at a time. But you know that that's nowadays the easy part. Uh, but still, finding the function of genes is something still very time consuming and that still requires very classic biology you need to you know to synthesize the protein and just try to figure out sometimes by serendipity like what does it do and if you don't have any clue you don't even know where to start in terms of of you know what experiments can i do to find out what this gene does so i, I think that that's one of the one of the biggest challenges in biology still for, for the next couple of years or a couple of de- decades, it's knowing what's the function of all these genes, which for the moment still have unknown function. So if I could have a magic wand to get all the knowledge I could have, it would be to find the, the function of those genes. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Daniel, thank you for coming. And what's the best way for people to find out about your research? Where should yeah, they go? Thanks for having me. So I would like to have a website for my group, which unfortunately I don't have yet because I, I just started my, my own group. I was a postdoc for several years. I, I just got my uh, associate professor position. So I'm still in the in the process of making a website for my group. So uh, for the moment, the only way is to really search for me in the literature and look at my, my publications. But I hope to soon have a website okay. where I will have not only the scientific work, but also, you know, also all, all things for, for the general public. I think that science communication and what you are doing now, it's re- something really important. And I, I look forward to engaging to more of this, this kind of activity. So I hope to also have there something for the, for the general public. Okay, excellent. Well, again, thank you for coming, Daniel. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.